All right, everybody, turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 13 through verse 17, just a few verses right here as we unpack the story of Jesus and Levi. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. In our series, Jesus is King, a series through the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read it. And then we will go through what the Spirit is saying to the church through His Word. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. And He, speaking of Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching them. And as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. This first verse of Jesus calling Levi might seem like a repeat. If you've been here in, the, in weeks past, you might remember in chapter 1, we saw the same story, only it was with four other people. It was with Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You might be tempted to think, gosh, this seems like a glitch in the matrix or in the text. He's saying the same story over and over again. It sounds like a repeat, but it's not. It's a similar story uncovering a different circumstance. And to illustrate that, I want you to imagine this. Imagine that you're, in a, you're on a field getting picked for a sports team. And as the team captain goes around the circle picking out his best first, the first person that he picks is the smallest, scrawniest, most annoying person on the field. That's the first person the team captain goes after. Now that might be a little annoying. It would be even more irritating if you were the tallest and the strongest and the smartest and the most adept at the sport being played. And if you can understand that analogy, you understand what's happening here. Levi is, for all intents and purposes, the scrawniest and most annoying in society. He doesn't deserve to be on the team, and he gets picked first. If Jesus were captain, if he were team captain, and there was a Jesus team, so to speak, and this is my first point, Jesus would pick the outcast. He always seems to pick the people that don't seem to fit by our perception. Now I say our perception because Jesus seems to, that they would, seems to think that they would fit just fine. But he seems, to, he seems to pick people for his team that everybody else thinks are not a great fit. I want to read these first two verses to you one more time so you can pick out 
uh, and find where Levi is the outcast. It says he, Jesus went out again by the sea. All the crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. You might be asking, how is Levi an outcast? Seems to be pretty fine to me. And it's wrapped up in that phrase, the tax booth. Levi was a tax collector. And Jesus is picking an outcast to follow him and to be a part of his team. How is he an outcast? Well, he's a tax collector. Now, a tax collector back then is a little bit different than a tax collector in our day. And you might say, well, I, have, I think I have similar affection towards IRS or anyone that tries to take my money. I think I get it. But it's a little bit different. Today, it might be an inconvenience. Back then, it was a lot deeper. Uh, tax collectors in the first century generally didn't tax you on sales or income. Uh, they didn't take censuses like you might see in Luke chapter 1 when Joseph and his family leave uh, for a census. Uh, tax collectors in the first century had a very unique role. They were like customs officials. You tend to find them sitting on bridges or, uh, or by the city gates. You would see them uh, overlooking bridges to boats. You would find them, if your particular region uh, was rich in farmland, you would see them visiting various farms. In other words, they generally went to where the money was at and where it was being generated to propose a tax on those people. But the twist is, the Romans often picked Jews to be tax collectors, to pull a tax from their fellow countrymen. And so this added a little bit of salt to the wound in that uh, the Jewish people in the first century weren't just, they, they were already feeling the weight of a Roman oppressor. They were already felt the weight of being occupied by a foreign entity and occupied by a foreign oppressor. But to add salt to the wound, it was their fellow countrymen who were coming into their space, proposing a tax on their hard work and bringing it back to the Roman oppressor. For them, it was a, an extreme act of betrayal. To make matters worse, uh, in order for a tax collector to generate a profit, they had to add on top of the Roman uh, taxes whatever it is that they needed to make a living. But because the Roman rulers didn't care what they added, there were no checks and balances to kind of, uh, to kind of guard against uh, corruption. And so it was very easy. The door was wide open for tax collectors to be corrupt, to charge as much as they wanted. This opened the door to things like exploitation and even in some cases, uh, blackmail. These were the true outcasts of Roman society in that day. In fact, to accept a job as a tax collector meant you were automatically disqualified from a place as a community judge or a court witness because nobody trusted you. You were excommunicated from the synagogue, which was your primary place of belonging. You were also disgraced, and that disgrace extended to your family and the entire society. 
this was really bad. In fact, it was so bad that for, from the mindset of your countrymen, you weren't just betraying them to the Roman oppressor for some great cause, like a religious cause or a political cause. It was just for money. It's for this reason that some ancient religious writings place tax collectors on the same moral bracket as murderers and thieves. So when we read about Levi tucked away in his tax booth, we are seeing an outcast to society. And Jesus chooses him to be a part of his team. I start with this because maybe you feel similarly. You might not be a tax collector in the first century, but maybe you feel out of place. Maybe that feeling of being out of place has come from a deep sense of shame. Maybe it's something you've done or something someone has done to you. Whatever it is, it has caused you to feel isolated and not from a sense of physical proximity, but emotional and relational proximity. Maybe you just don't feel like you belong. And I got good news for you. Jesus chooses you to be a part of his team too. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just pick outcasts to follow him. He picks outcasts to follow him with other outcasts. That's where it gets a little hazy for us. We love the personal relationship with Jesus. I do. It's all the other people. But Jesus doesn't stop with a personal relationship. He brings us into a company of fellow outcasts. Listen to verse 15 where we see a little bit of this. It says, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So in other words, as soon as Levi gets called, uh, the, uh, verse 14 was speaking about Levi, and so the logical uh, consequences of this is that the table that's being spoken of in verse 15 is Levi's house. So Levi is probably enamored with Jesus. He can't believe a Jewish rabbi is inviting him to, uh, into fellowship with him. And so Levi does what probably most of us would do. We invite Jesus into the house. And I love that next line as an aside because it shows us that many tax collectors were also in the house. I almost wonder if there was such a vacuum in the soul of the tax collector in Capernaum that day, that they saw Jesus showing love to one tax collector. They were like, oh, I want that too. What I really want to focus on is a different line, three words, that not only was Jesus at the party, so were his disciples. Two words. They were all partying at Levi's house in Capernaum. Now, I want, you to, I want you to see how profound this is, what's going on in the living room. Levi, remember, was a customs agent over Capernaum. And Capernaum was known for its fishing industry. That's where all the money came from. It was the fish from the halibut. And so it's very likely that Levi was the tax guy in Capernaum Taxing fishermen, exorbitant, extortionary prices to line his pockets as a professional betrayer. Who are some of Jesus' disciples? It's Peter. 
What did Peter do for a living before Jesus scooped him up? He was a fisherman in a small town. What I'm trying to tell you is Peter almost certainly, walking through the house, through the door of that house, almost certainly knew who Levi was and despised him. And this is where we see the full extent and power of the gospel. This is a wild scene. We're not talking about two people that are slightly irritated with each other and being passive aggressive in conversation. These are mortal enemies. Uh, to put it to you this way, Peter wasn't just a fisherman. He was a religious zealot. A religious zealot was like a religious extremist from the rural area of Galilee. This is the guy who carried a sword and a Bible, one in hand, one in the other, who was waiting to destroy Rome. In fact, that's what he thought Jesus was sent to do. Later on in another gospel, we'll see him cutting off the ear of a, not even a bad guy, it was like the assistant to the bad guy. Impulsive, violent, desiring power, hurting, wanting to take care of Rome, through violence. That was Peter. Levi was the other guy. Levi was the Wall Street bureaucrat. He was the corrupt politician. He was the guy in the suit. Uh, I'm going to get a little more specific and raw because I really need your, you guys to wrap your minds around the silliness and insanity of what's happening in this house. So I'm going to give you some examples. Is that all right? Peter was a freedom fighter, a religious freedom fighter. When we see things on television like Al-Qaeda, that's probably what we can compare in some sense Peter to being. Fighting as the little man with the sword for a religious cause. Fighting against global powers. When we see Levi, we're seeing the picture of global powers. Or to give you another example, Levi was like the guy in the suit, a political lobbyist hiding behind a mahogany desk in DC. Out of touch with the people of the land, simply there to line his pockets. Peter was the guy cruising up the steps of the Capitol on January 6th, looking for vengeance. Now, I'm not blessing any of these sides. I'm just saying that's what we're seeing here. These are not two people who are slightly irritated with one another. They hate each other's guts. And this, this freedom fighter and a corrupt bureaucratic traitor find themselves in the same room because of Jesus. This is the type of thing that Jesus does. And this is not a typical home group. You hear what I'm saying? Like, how do y'all choose your home groups? You go online, you choose a group that's in a slightly, uh, maybe a slightly convenient place, maybe by the Mesa, you test it out. Oh, there's that one guy who talks too much, so you try another one, you find another one, there's another person there that talks too much, maybe another person has a different political view than yours, slightly irritating, but that home group 
rogue home group serves wine, and so it makes that other part a little more tolerable. And so you're like, yeah, home group. I'm doing it. Fellowship of Jesus. This is the fellowship of Jesus. Jesus takes people who are mortal enemies, and he brings them together. Now, the extent of our love might be for one of those groups. We resonate with one side. And we're like, yes. Let's cut them some slack. Jesus says, sees both, and he brings them together by the power of the gospel. And he makes a team out of them, a Jesus team, a Jesus family. You know what's funny about this? If I tried to do this, if I threw a home group in downtown Santa Barbara with Peter and Levi... Peter would have killed Levi, somewhere between the tuna casserole and the opening discussion questions. In fact, he would, he would use his sword on people for less things in the gospel. Maybe that's why the most powerful thing the world can communicate to people who hate each other is mere tolerance. That's all we got. That's all our minds are capable of stretching towards. But Jesus isn't here to preach mere tolerance. He comes to preach genuine love and transformation. In fact, remember what he would say earlier to Peter? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. My first question was, do you feel like an outcast? Well, God's got a place for you. My second question is, do you view someone else as an outcast? Well, guess what? God has a place for them too. And you know where it is? It's in your living room. And that, brothers and sisters, is hard. Maybe that's why our group life, and I don't just mean church, but just the way we organize our relationships are so homogenous sometimes. We gather around things like life stage and similar view viewpoints because it really is hard to be about, around people who have different viewpoints, different stories. But this is precisely what Jesus the Messiah came to do. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see that the effect of the gospel is to tear down dividing walls of hostility and to make one where there was two. And what's hard about that is what, what the love of Jesus reveals about us in our hearts. And this is what we see in the next verse. We see the self-righteous heart. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when a Pharisee uses the phrase sinner, they're using it maybe differently than we think. In this context, it doesn't mean someone who breaks the moral law of God, you know, who sins like we would think of it. The Pharisees use the term sin to denote outcasts, outcasts to their society. See, the Pharisees were so into the law of God, and that's a good thing. They cared about God. They loved God. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to honor God and obey God. 
But their only way to do that was through something called separation or holiness, something that God can do very well that we struggle with. And they carried it out so extensively that it actually moved into all the granular details of their life. They were so concerned about separation that they would separate themselves from people who didn't follow the rules. They would separate spices in their spice rack. They would separate everything, fabric, all of that stuff. So meticulous were they about separation that they referred to anybody who did not take their religious protocols as seriously as them, sinners. Another phrase that they used were the people of the land, people, the, the people down there, the commoners. In fact, in an ancient text called the Mishnah, it says, he that undertakes to be trustworthy, in other words, to be a Pharisee, may not be the guest of one of the people of the land. So that's probably what's going through the minds of these scribes and Pharisees as they see the scandalous scene of Jesus eating dinner with tax collectors. Why would he do that? A self-righteous heart is offended by what we see here. And what we see here is grace. This is the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. You have been saved by grace through faith. It is not a result of your works. It is a gift of God, lest anybody should boast. God saves and he loves because that's what he does, not because we earned it or deserved it. And that is offensive to a self-righteous heart, to my self-righteous heart, because I want to earn my place in society. I want to earn my place in God goods right. I want to earn my place in fellowship and in relationship. I want to preach a good sermon. I want to be a good Christian. I want to be a good parent. I want to be a good college student. I want to be the best in my job. I want to earn what I think I deserve. But the only thing I've earned is my own sin. Worked really hard at that, by the way. And God must and has reached out to us by the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And when your whole life is bent on earning something, grace is very difficult. Grace means that God loves those who can do nothing for him. Let's simply respond to his love. There's a... There's a saying that uh, one of the most Googled passages of the Bible, uh, I should say the most Googled passages that people think are in the Bible that is not actually in the Bible, is this phrase, God helps people who help themselves. Not in the Bible. Commonly attributed to the Bible, it's not in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible quite like that, but I imagine if there was, it would say something completely opposite. God helps people who can't help themselves. Leaving us no room and space to do anything but respond to the scandalous grace and love of God. And perhaps even now you're cringing a little bit like, oh, I want to bring something to the table. Brothers and sisters, 
All we need in this moment is to be softened by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is precisely what Jesus does when he responds to the scribes in this last verse. It says, when Jesus heard their response, he said, those who are well have no need of a doctor. But those who are sick, that's why I came. I came to call the righteous, uh, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, right here, Jesus is quoting a traditional proverb that the Pharisees would have easily agreed with, and he kind of catches them. I also wonder if he's being slightly ironic, saying, oh, you don't need me. Well, there's nothing I could do for you, when the truth is they have the deepest need. Whatever he's saying in this phrase, we can, we can understand this, that experiencing God's love requires a radical vulnerability and openness to his grace. And your takeaway will depend on where you are right now. Maybe you're in the spot of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's okay. As long as you're honest with it. Because healing often starts with a sense of self-awareness. What would have been awesome for those scribes is when Jesus said that, for them to say, hmm, maybe I'm the one who's sick. How do you know if you have a self-righteous heart? Well, the way you feel is always tied to how well you've done. You feel joy when you've, you've lived your day really well, and you feel discouragement and despair when you've not done the things that you thought you were supposed to. Some of you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum, like the tax collector. And instead of self-righteousness, you might feel shame guilt. It might be so heavy that it's almost oppressive in its feeling. And you're afraid of approaching Jesus because you feel that you don't deserve it. You feel that you've done too much to ruin it. You feel like you need to get your life in order. You feel out of place. And what we can gather from this passage is that no one is beyond the love of God and Jesus Christ, whether tax collector or scribe, whether the, whether the over, uh, overshamed and oppressed or the greedy and the self-righteous. And if you feel out of place, well, I've got good news for you. So is the tax collector, so is the zealot, so are the fishermen, and so are the women. All of them in that society felt out of place, and that was what Jesus chose to build his team. Even if the world doesn't have a place for you, the king of the universe does. I'm going to ask a worship team to come up here as we, as we respond through music because I, I want to invite you into something right now. I want to invite you to turn your attention to Jesus in this way. By asking yourself, as we sing this first song, what's holding you back from fellowship? Whether it's fellowship with Jesus or meaningful relational fellowship, what's holding you back? And it might be two things. It might be shame. It might be a self-righteous defensive mechanism. 
I'm going to actually throw in a third thing just because of Peter and Levi. It might be some relational disrepair. In other words, you might feel ashamed, and that's keeping you stuck. You might feel self-righteous, and that's making you want to perform well. Or there might be some, dis- there might be some relational disrepair. There's a few people in our church already that believe that God is actually wanting to speak into some of your lives because your relationships have been so broken that you're about to give up on them. And I don't know if that's you, but I feel like that's for somebody here. There's relational disrepair that you're about to give up on. And I want you to see from this text that Jesus is able to bring mortal enemies back together. And you might not be able to do it, but the Messiah can. And so there's actually going to be some prayer teams. I'm going to ask those prayer teams to come up. They'll have lanyards. They're going to be over by that white suburban. If you have relational disrepair, I want you to go over there and get some prayer. If you have shame, if you have self-righteousness, if there's something that's causing you to be stuck, if there's a relationship that's on the verge of being irreparably broken, I want you to lob it into the hands of Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter says, cast your care onto the Lord because he cares for you. We do that in part by praying. Give it to the Lord. After this first song, I'm actually gonna come back up here and lead us through a gospel response to our shame, self-righteousness, and relational disrepair through communion. But before we get there, we start with vulnerability and openness. So what's holding you back, brothers and sisters? Be honest with the Lord because he cares for you. He loves you. And there's nothing that you currently hold and are weighted down with that he cannot handle in this moment. Do you believe that? Let's respond in worship and singing, but also through reflection what's holding you back. Let's receive prayer in time of need and offer these things to a God who can heal.